fall through the cracks, uh, never able to connect and um, really be part of what God has desired for them to be part of and his desire for community in the church. And uh, uh, this is one way that we have kind of sought to kind of bring the family together and to kind of share the different needs. Because I find like once we share the different needs of uh, interest of serving or um, the different gifts in the body, uh, that we're able to plug them in. I mean, if we don't know <laughs> that there's actually a desire to um, do something here at Hilltop, to sing, to welcome Children's Church, the whole nine, then uh, unfortunately uh, people can get lost and say, hey, what about me? And, and so those cards are just a way that we can kind of hopefully um, get to bring everybody into the fray and serve in one capacity or another here at Hilltop. And so um, one more thing I want to bring to attention, just because um, me and my wife has, have been um, messaged a lot, and it's over the issue of the house at 135 Western Avenue. Uh, we had posted um, some stuff um, about maybe two, three months ago, I'd say about around there. Um, our landlord had come to us saying that he needed to sell the house, and we've been there for seven years, and so it was a bit of a shock for us. You know, it's, it's, if, if people only knew coming to see that house what actually happens within the context of those four walls, um, it's just we have much history there at 135 Western Avenue. Um, and uh, the landlord had to sell it and has to sell it uh, due to some financial hardship in his life. Him and his brother co-own it. And so... Um, just because there's so much surrounding it, we're getting messages, phone calls from people we haven't heard from in a long time, some people that are part of our community and such. We wanted to clear the air. Listen, um, whatever happens with the house, J-Hop is not going anywhere. Um, if it's sold, if it's kept and preserved uh, for the house of prayer, it doesn't really matter. Um, we have a foothold in this city as a house of prayer, and we will continue <laughs> that foothold until revival happens or the Lord comes back. And so that's our goal. We are in faith. Uh, even though when we first heard the news that the landlord needed to sell it, um, at first it shook us a little bit. But over the weeks and months, we've become more kind of confident, believing that God's writing a story, you know. He's taking us, if you would, to our, a next stage, a new stage. And so um, we're in faith, uh, believing God for awesome things. We've had a couple people approach uh, the ministry about the potential of helping us. Um, uh, uh, nothing is really materialized, but we're in faith and we're believing God um, uh, for his purpose and his plan to be flushed out in any way he sees fit. And so um, just wanted to start there um, and hope to kind of calm the uh, hundreds of emails and, and stuff. We appreciate it. You know, um, we know that the house of prayer is just not dear to me and my wife. We know it's dear to the Lord, and we know that it's dear to others. And um, I don't look at this as like a setback at all. I look at it as a place to advance. You know, sometimes we can get very comfortable, can't we, as people? And there's a little bit of that element, element, I think, at the house of prayers that we've become comfort with what the Lord has provided for us thus far. Um, but I've known and experienced in my life many times that when I get comfortable, 
It's usually when the Lord kind of shakes the foundation a little bit and says, okay, Daryl, you're a little bit comfortable. I want to shake things up a little bit. Because, uh, you know, where there's no risk, there's no faith. You know, where there's no risk, there's no faith. You know, if you're not believing God for great things, ultimately, I have seen in my own life that I've just become overly comfortable Thus, what he's provided thus far. And so I believe that this is a place where God is kind of stretching us and providing a means to operate in faith. That may be heresy to some of you, but I, I believe it's scriptural. So anyways, that's the issue over the house. Uh, now again, we're having Lou Engel. How many are excited for Lou, Papa Lou, the father, the whatever you want to call it? Once a year, we have the privilege of having Lou come, and he's going to be with us um, it's actually going to be February 28th and March 1st. We are doing something the 27th of February, but that's going to be a closed um, meeting with some of our leaders and married couples and stuff. Um, but the 28th and the 27th, we will be gathering together. Um, on the 28th, we're going to be over at, uh, is the slide in there? Is the slide, the Lou Angle slide? Okay, never mind. I don't want to screw you up too much. We'll get to the details. Listen, if you want to find out more details about the event, go to the Justice House of Prayer, uh, jhopboston.com or hilltop.com, hilltopboston.com, and you can find out all the details. This is a registration uh, event. It's, it, we're only going to be able to let a certain amount of people in, uh, given the size of the space. And uh, so you need to register, okay? Um, for us here as a body... We are going to offer free registration. There's going to be a code. But regardless of that, um, for your free registration, you're going to need a code. So you're going to need to come to either me or Will Eifler to get that code. And then probably next Sunday we'll have it over on the overheads. Um, does that make sense? Everybody following? It's a, little bit, uh, it's a little bit kind of complicated because we're essentially meeting in two large spaces. We're meeting in a large space on Saturday and we're, leading, we're meeting here uh, the following. And so uh, the one that we're meeting on Saturday has a larger venue. It's a larger venue. It holds more people. This only holds a certain amount of people. And there it is, right there. Okay? All right. God bless America. If you would, turn with me. Well, really, God bless America. I'm, I'm, I'm all about it. If you would, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. How many are excited about Christmas this evening? I am a huge Christmas head. I, I just love the, this time in the season. And I love... I love Santa Claus. I know that's probably bad, I, you know, but I just, I, I get it. I, I just, I love trees. I love the lights. I love everything about it. I love the over-commercialism. I just love it. I just sink right into it, and, and it, it, it kind of catches me all up, but um, uh, I don't know where all that came from. Obviously, there's an excitement about Christmas. How many are excited about Christmas? I know some of you, you aren't going to get gifts anymore, you know, there just comes a certain time where, you know, mom and dad shouldn't be buying you gifts, it's just wrong, I just, uh, and, you know, but anyways, it's a great season, it's a great time of the year. I want to title this message, uh, Love Never Stops Dreaming of a Way to Draw Close. Love Never Stops Dreaming of a Way to Draw Close. I can't take credit for the title. Me, my wife, and my son have actually um, been reading a book called Unwrapping the Greatest Gift by Anne Voltzkamp. And essentially, this book unearths um, uh, the overwhelming truths of God's love in both the Old and New Testament. 
And so we wanted to have like a real Christ-centered, given that I am so like Santa Claus, you know, I'm like so commercialism Christmas, you know, it's like, yes, singing all the latest Christmas songs and all the old ones. Um, We wanted to get something for our family that actually made it about what it really is about, Christ. And so love never stops dreaming of a way to draw close. If you haven't already, turn with me to the book of um, Isaiah, uh, chapter 9. Isaiah, chapter 9. And I just want to start off reading in verse 7, the third part. So I'm going to skip down. In my Bible, there's actually like three short sentences, if you would. I'm going to start right at the very last one, the third in the NLT. I know that's not very helpful, but that's where I'm going to start. Verse 7, the third part says, The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's army will make this happen. You know, usually in the Old Testament, when you see the word passion and the way that it relates to God's nature or character, it speaks of his zeal. His zeal over a matter, his zeal over for a person. And when you see the commitment, it's always directly connected towards his commitment to his people. And so the Lord's passionate. I love uh, the NLT and the way it puts this prophetic word, the, the passionate commitment. He just doesn't say the commitment. There's a passion behind the commitment. I don't know, for me it just works. And so again, when you see the word passion, usually in the old language, it connects or it relates right to God's zeal. And when you see commitment, it always has to do with his commitment towards his people. Now, in Isaiah chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to briefly summarize, if you would, this chapter. Because I think the parallels between these two chapters are, are awesome. <laughs> I think they're... They're glorious in a sense because what I believe and what I see much through the Old Testament is kind of uh, God's severity, if you would, in his goodness. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah speaks of a time of judgment, a military invasion led by an Assyrian king. Not necessarily a good thing to hear, right, on the heels of Isaiah chapter 9 where Isaiah prophesies about the greatest gift that will be uh, coming into the earth centuries later, the Messiah. But on the forefront of that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah drops a heavy. It's not the first one that he drops. Actually, chapter 3 and 4 of Isaiah, you see the same parallels. You see this great judgment, this calamity that is about ready to hit Israel But then on the heels of that prophecy, you see the goodness of God, the love of God. And for me, it uh, makes tons of sense. Uh, Unfortunately, in Isaiah chapter 8, there's no resolve. This thing is going to happen one way or the other. They're going to be crushed. The outer skirts of the northern border of Israel is literally going to be crushed under this Assyrian king's army. If you know anything about the Assyrians back in this time in history, they were a brutal people. They were a great force in the earth, a powerful, demonic, 
people who were brutal, who had no regard for human life. And essentially what started on the border of Israel crept all the way, all the way through the city. So following this trouble, pro, troubling excuse me, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 8 comes another prophecy in chapter 9, which is a prophecy of hope. Why? Because it's the prophecy of the messianic age that is dawning upon the earth. Did you hear me? <laughs> this wasn't the first time that Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah. Actually, the first time that Isaiah prophesied about Jesus was in chapter 7, when he referred to Christ as Emmanuel. These two chapters alone, back to back like they are, uh, reflect the very nature for me, the very love that God has for his people. Again, it, it paints a picture where you see the severity of God where he is not willing to tolerate sin. And he sends something to once again capture his people's attention. And then on the back side of that calamity, that strong word, he comes in with the, the prophecy of Jesus. Great hope, great darkness, and great hope together. In one instance, God is going to send calamity on his people, and the means of why. It was simple. In Isaiah 8, 5, 6, if you want to look there, this is what God spoke to Isaiah for his reasoning. And, and understand that the details were far more vast than what God will put here. But just it's interesting to me that this is what God would say to Isaiah in explaining his problem with his people. Here it is, Isaiah chapter 8. He says, then the Lord spoke to me again and said, my care for my people of Judah is like the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh, but they have rejected it. God essentially wanted to care for them. And of course, listen, if you read the first couple chapters of Isaiah, you see it was more than just the, the, the lack of of trusting in God and wanting to be fathered by God and being cared for by God. It was, there was uh, idol worship, there was perversion, but yet God sums it up and says, I've wanted to care for them. <laughs> Can you imagine that? God who observes all things. The patience of God blows my mind. The, the patience of God blows my mind. It, it's unreal that the God who sees all things, who, who in the Old Testament is referred as the God who stands on the balcony of heaven, looking down upon earth. He sees all things. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Can sum up his heart in these couple words with all he says is, all I've wanted to do is care for you. You have rejected it. <laughs> You mean, God, all the perversion, all the worship of idols, you know, and all the darkness and sin that you have seen, you come out, you speak through your prophet Isaiah, and all you say is, I just wanted to care for you. I just wanted to care for you. But you rejected it. 
And then obviously in Isaiah chapter 9, we see just how God wants to care. Love never stops dreaming. <laughs> and of course, love for us is what? God. God is the essence of love. He's more than the essence of love. He is love. Love, God, never stops dreaming of a way to draw close to his people. In one instance, God is going to send a great calamity on his people by the means of war. Why? For rejecting his care. In another instance, Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, he is prophesying about a great, glorious light that will break through centuries. Understand the centuries of darkness and despair. Of course, this light is the Messiah, right? It's Jesus. And it's funny that many centuries, many, much time would pass before the fulfillment of the birth of Christ. You know, share a funny story. Um, a good friend of us, uh, ours, our family, Douglas Hobbs, he had bought a uh, story, I think it's the Action Storybook Bible for, kids, for children. I mean, this thing is... It's on point. I love it. It's just like, it's like the typical man's man version of the Old and New Testament. You got death. You got slaughtering. You got all this. You're just like action-packed. I mean, they don't pull any, any, any uh, you know, trying to soften the pictures. And I know my five years old is looking at it. But, you know, I think it's like, you know, this is the Bible, son. Some of the most brutal things were recorded in the Old Testament. Why shy away from it? I know. I know. But I have no problem with it. And it's funny, my son can spend hours. <laughs> we, we can sit down for an hour and a half just reading the Old Testament. And he's kind of like, you know, chronological order kind of guy. He's got his, like, little card out ready. He's like, listen, when we stop, put this card in where we stop so I, we know when we're picking up. This is how committed and how much he loves this book. And it was funny, one time we were having uh, our, um, Bethany's parents over for dinner and uh, I'm trying to get the kid to slow down because he's just, when kid, he's an only child. You know, just an only child. Uh, and if you know anything about only children, they are just high strung. Uh, and when people come over, that sense of like energy comes out. He's just, he's everywhere. And, you know, we're just trying to have a conversation with mom and dad. And, you know, and mom and dad are getting old and they're just, they love their grandchildren, but they can peace out whenever they want. They don't have to stay committed at all. They're like, okay, I'm gone. I'm gone. But anyways, I, I understand that Bethany wanted to uh, connect with her parents. And, and so I was like, Abram, 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 come here. Because I know he's just going to fall for the storybook Bible. It's just going to be easy. And um, so we sat that evening um, as Bethany and her parents were talking. And um, we're reading. I think it was, actually, it was actually in the Old Testament. I don't think it was in Exodus, but it was somewhere around there. And it's funny because Abram picked, on some, picked up on something that I totally didn't pick up on. I just, I, did, I was like, well, when he said what he said, I was like, how did you get that? How did you get that? Anyway, so we're reading a story, the story upon story. I think it was at, at the point he said it, we're probably like five chapters. And understand that, that this, the Bible doesn't include every line, every precept, doesn't every word. It just gets the, the, the meat and the substance of the chapters and then it puts it into story form. And, you know, I've learned more from that book than I have some of my commentaries and some of the, it's just brilliant. Um, and so 
we're reading, and, and, and I guess Abram picks up on this theme of this kind of in and out relationship that Israel had with God. Um, for instance, uh, Israel needed something. They would complain to God. God would move and do something supernatural in their midst and bring about what they needed. And then very shortly after, Israel would rebel and worship idols or whatever. They would just go away and just like turn their backs on God. And we're reading this story and literally looking back on it now, I'm like, wow, you picked up on this. How could I not see this? Of course, it's easy, right? We, we know it now because I'm saying it, but the, the theme that he picked up on was, was <laughs> for a five-year-old, I was like, my God. And so we're reading and all of a sudden, Abram just busts out. He's like, come on! I'm like, what? He's like, are you kidding me? Seriously. It stopped the conversation in my dining room. That's how, that's how you know, kind of, uh, um, what is it, animated it was. And like, come on! And he was really frustrated. I'm like, what, Abram? Because at this point, I'm like, what are you, what's your deal, dude? We're like having a moment here. He's like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, God does this stuff for Israel, and then Israel just turns away from God. When are the guys going to get it? And isn't that much like our own stories today? You may disregard it. You may kind of just not feel like that's the way it is. But ultimately, our struggles today come down to the same principles it came down to in the Old Testament. I know. You don't agree with that. Well, you know, I don't know. The book kind of speaks for itself. And I know some of us are not literalist when we look at the word, but I kind of am. And, you know, if I can see a pattern in the Bible like my five-year-old son did, I hope that any educated, um, rational man or woman would see that also. But isn't that the case? God does something awesome. We tend to say, yes, God, we will worship you. You are the man. And then all of a sudden, life gets hard. Or we get distracted, or we get familiar. Maybe life's not hard, but we're just... We're, you know, we're just like enjoying the goodness of life. Have you ever just enjoyed the, the blessings of God and then all of a sudden found in enjoying the blessings of God that your heart is about as dead as a man who is three seconds of going to heaven? You know, I don't know. That's the best thing I came up with. But have you ever noticed that sometimes even in God's goodness, our hearts can become callous? We can become disconnected. I've been there. Man, I'd say that I'm, I've been there more than I have than just like turning my back on God. I've been enjoying his goodness, his blessings. Sounds weird. But Israel did it. Israel saw God move in mighty, powerful ways. And at the minute and in the moment, it was like, yes, surely Moses is the man. And, and God is really God. And we will never, ever turn our backs on him. Am I, am I too loud? I'm sorry. I just... I'm not mad. I say this often. I'm just passionate. I love the Bible, and I love Jesus, and I just think that there's a way that that needs to manifest. And so Abram comes up with this thing, and he says, come on. And, and I, I had to, like, connect with him, and I was like, yeah, you know what? Abram, you are brilliant. You are a man for picking up on this. I mean, I, I'm sure somewhere in this mess up here, it was there, but I had forgotten that that this was literally the life of Israel, God's people. And, and I can say as a 
pastor and as a leader in church for 14, 15 years, that this is literally the course and the pattern of most of us here in this room today. And I don't say that to beat us up. I don't say that to condemn us. I'm there with you. There are many times that God moves powerfully on my behalf, and then I get so caught up in that, that blessing that I totally disregard and, and, and neglect my relationship with him. And then I find myself in a mess. Anyways, back to you. Isaiah chapter 8, and essentially this is what I would like to say here, just to read it to the record. It says, the effects of this invasion, back to Isaiah chapter 8, the invasion of this Assyrian army would last what would be many lifetimes until a great light is revealed. Remember what we said is that um, the effects of this war would not just be a, a, a quick happening. It would last essentially till Jesus is born. Can you imagine that? Like, I don't, I've, I've tried to study just how long that time was between Isaiah chapter 8 and the Gospels and the birth of Christ. And I, nobody has really come out clearly and said how long that time was. But believe me, friends, it was a good long time. Just between Malachi and the Gospel of Matthew, 400 years had passed, right? Is that true? 400 years had passed between the prophet Malachi's book to the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is read or, or written into Scripture. That's a long time. Imagine a great darkness, a great despair that couldn't be uh, broken, an anguish that no matter wherever you look, no matter whatever you try to kind of find peace and comfort, you would find none. If you would, just look uh, quickly at uh, chapter 8, uh, 21 and 22. And this is re- in, in the regards of the effects of war. Now we're going somewhere, so just, just hold on. It's early. we got time. Uh, verses 21 and 22 of Isaiah chapter 8 says this. They, they being Israel, they being Judah, they being Damascus, Samaria, they will go from one place to another, weary and hungry. And because they are hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. Sounds a little heavy for a couple of weeks out of Christmas, but we're going somewhere. This is really a Christmas story. Uh, Hilltop is not your normal church. We know everybody is, you know, doing Christmas thing, but this is the way I'd like to do Christmas today. So they will curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth, but wherever they look, they will be troubled, and they will be in anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into darkness. Now, this is just talking about the effects of this war. The darkness is so pervasive that the, in the Gospel of John... Jesus's, for one of Jesus' first disciples goes to Nathanael, right? To tell him that he's found the one that Moses spoke of. That he's actually found the one, Christ, that the prophets wrote about. And Nathanael's first response is like, surely nothing good will come out of Nazareth. That, you got to understand, you, did you connect that? You just, you have, you have Philip in excitement saying, hey, 
I think we found that guy. <laughs> you know, the one that Moses was talking about? And, and, and the one that Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the prophets uh, uh, prophesied and wrote about? I think, I, I think we found the dude. And I'm, you know, Nathaniel's just like, man, nothing good will ever come out of that region. Why? Because they were still feeling the effects of this war. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. But on the heels of this troubling prophecy again, that largely went unheeded, would come another prophecy <laughs> that would affect humanity forever. The effects of Christ and what he has done is tangible even in this room today, this hour, right now. That is amazing to me. R.T. France uh, writes this commentary in, of Isaiah chapter 9. And he says this, so the first part of Israel to succumb to war would be the first part to see the glory, to see the Messiah. Again, the, the first part of Israel that would come under this totalitarian government that would seek to rummage, pillage, rape, and destroy would be the first people to witness the Messiah. <laughs> A striking prophecy which went unheeded. Uh, the mounting relief and joy in verses 1 through 5 as the trappings of war are abolished. Prepare us to meet the deliverer. But instead of some latter Gideon, because in Isaiah chapter 9 he references the war of Gideon, it would be a child. <laughs> it would be a child. It wouldn't be a strengthened Gideon who defeated with a small army a great military force. It would come in the form of a child. A child. The Son of God became a child. <laughs> no, no, no. Again, God reduced himself and became a human. Not just a human, but at one point, a child. The essence of innocence God became. The essence of dependency. Can you imagine? God puts himself in a place to be dependent on humans as a child. God, the uncreated being, puts himself in a place of being dependent upon humans. Are you kidding me? Some of you got it. In Matthew 4, 15 through 16, let's turn there real quick. Four, two verses. Is everybody all right? Is everybody all right with me? Okay, good. Doesn't really matter if you're not. I have the mic. No, just kidding. <laughs> but I do. No, it's just, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. No, I want you to be okay with me. All right. Now, I'm not going to pronounce these two um, Cities here. Um, I think it's just I don't want to butcher them. So, but it, this is the prophecy of Isaiah in the book of Matthew, as Matthew records it in the land of whatever, and of whatever, beside the sea beyond the Jordan River in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who have lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light 
has shined. Now again, we may read that and think that this was spiritual darkness. And although there was probably a sense of that. But ultimately, friends, this was a darkness of the consequences of war. This was a very tangible, broken, dark people who just went through centuries of being beaten down by this Assyrian king. And all of a sudden, Jesus enters the world. Turn back, back to Isaiah chapter 9. Let's read a couple verses. Um, two, we'll actually read one through six here. Nevertheless, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. That's pretty hopeful, isn't it? So right now, the prophecy changes. And the prophecy is this, is that this time will not last forever even though I'm sure to Israel, Damascus, Samaria, the, the, the cities and the towns, it seemed like a long time before forever would end. The land of whatever and the land of whatever will be humbled. <laughs> but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel. That speaks to its borders. Now, I'm sure they lost a lot of area and terrain in this war. And they had to give up a lot of these towns and cities to this government that was pressing in on them all uh, on all sides but Isaiah prophesies listen God is going to enlarge you again very hopeful he's going to enlarge your borders okay they will rejoice before you as people at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder for you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. That's the reference that R.T. France wrote about Gideon in the commentary. The boots of the warriors, the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. And then the prophecy takes what I think is a remarkable personal turn. And Isaiah prophesies this. He says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Can, are you kidding me? Unto us. I know it's not about us, right? As we learned last week in Noah's message. And we have a tendency to make it all about us. But here Isaiah, he says, listen, unto you, <laughs> unto you a child will be given. And this isn't like any child. You know, when my son was born, that was a very private matter. <laughs> this between me, my wife, and some close friends and some close family. But other than that, I didn't want Joe Schmo just walking through the room. It was a private moment. But here God is, no, this son is for the world. <laughs> unto us. Unto us. Think about that. Get that in your head. I say that nicely. Get that in your heart, in your spirit, that God decided to share himself with 
humanity. <laughs> oh, man. This prophecy becomes very personal to us. With these famous words, unto us a child is born, a son is given to us. It is at this point that in this prophecy we feel deeply connected to the plan of God through the life of Christ. The child that was given to us. Jesus was given to us. The child, God, the beloved, the darling of heaven would be given as a ransom for all people. That just energizes me today. God gives his very best for our very worst. I know that doesn't grammatically make sense all the way, but think about it. Think about it. God gave his son so that our sin could be forgiven. He purchased our freedom and he reconciled us to himself through the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. This is our hope. This is our glorious hope today. When we lose the message of the good news, we are in a dangerous place. And today, friend, I want to call us to remember what God did in the life of Christ for you and for me. Unto us, a child is given. He has given us his son. I don't want to go too old school on you, but... John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave us. (laughs) Some of us have a hard time giving anything to God, but yet God gives his very best to us. Himself. (laughs) Himself. When the word became flesh, John, turn there, and we're closing soon. John 1, we're going to read a couple verses. Probably more than a couple. Hopefully I don't stammer and stumble over my words. John 1.1. Is everybody okay? Is everybody all right? All right. Tears the season. John 1. Is that right? Is that? I, I think I heard that on the song once. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. Who is this who existed in the beginning with God? God created everything through him. I want to read it like this. In the beginning, Jesus already existed. (laughs) Jesus was God. Jesus was God. Jesus was with God. Jesus existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Jesus. (laughs) And nothing was created except through Jesus. Jesus gave life to everything that was created. His life, Jesus' life, brought life and light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Some of us need to hear that today. We over-glorify our darkness, but listen, if you got Christ today in you, the hope of glory... There is nothing that can extinguish the penetrating light of Christ. (laughs) Yeah. God, in verse 6, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light 
so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, do you notice a theme here, was coming into the world. He came into this very world. He created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. Nothing that was done with physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human. The word became flesh. Jesus became the word who created us, the word who created every living thing, the word that through that word, through Christ, everything was created. This word became flesh. (laughs) So the word became a human and made his home among us. Now, if that's not humility, the son of God, The Son of God, God Himself, made His home among us. I barely want to make this my home. (laughs) He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father. Father's one, His only Son. John testified about Him. When he shouted to the crowds, this is the one. Hey, just so you know, when I speak up loud, John shouted to the crowds. I'm not the only one. I'm in good company. They actually said the most profound thing about Christ was that he was so loud in his teachings. Because prior to him and prior to John and some of the apostles, usually preaching would happen like this. And let us turn to the book of Matthew. And one thing that captivated the audience is here comes these guys who are tipping over tables, who are shouting, this is the one! This is the Messiah, the one I am not worthy of undoing his sandals. Jesus, you should baptize me! So let's not get caught up in semantics. God's passionate about his word. Why? Because his word is his son. God gives his very best for our very worst. For our very worst. Um, God gave his son so that our sin could be forgiven. He purchased our freedom. He reconciled God and humanity. 1 Timothy, if you would, 2, chapter 2. 1 Timothy, chapter 2. Just one more. Well, I hope one more. Is everybody okay? Is everybody all right? Turn to your neighbor and say, man, I'm glad you're here today. Come back next Sunday. He's really a nice guy. Go ahead and say, he's really a nice guy. When you get to meet him. No, I'm just joking. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. It says this, for there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man Christ Jesus, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This message God gave to the world at just the right time. I want you to remember, 
those words, at just the right time. At just the right time. Now, there's, there's things that are f- more profound in these two verses than just that little statement, at just the right time. But I want you to remember, because whenever the New Testament introduces Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the apostles, Paul, Peter, they say, at just the right time, God found it fit to send his son into earth at just the right time. Think about this. When the word became flesh, we have no capacity to understand the incredible humiliation that was involved when the word became flesh. It is unthinkable. It is, un, it is an unthinkable reality that defies comprehension when we think of the second person of the Trinity. Excuse me entering into humanity forever because Jesus will forever be a man in which the eternal word will dwell. You think about it. When the infinitely powerful became weak, the wonderful, majestic one became humble. The creator of the universe became one of us. Isn't that what Paul says? He became one of us. I don't think you're hearing me. The infinite, eternal, self-sustaining being who created every atom in the universe and put them all in their right places became dependent on the nourishment of his mother's breast and the warmth and loving touch of his parents. As a child, the eternal son was in a state of submission to the will of God, the Father in heaven, and also the guidance and the rule of his parents on earth. (laughs) This is incredible and unthinkable at the same time. It is a demonstration of infinite love and incredible humility. At his birth, we see the beginning of the work of redemption. Romans chapter 5. And this is where we will conclude. Romans chapter 5. Someone say, good word, Daryl. <laughs> Romans chapter 5. And we're going to start just reading a couple of verses and then we'll close here. verse 6 says this when we were utterly hopeless Christ came at just the right time (laughs) and died for us sinners now most people would be willing to die I'm sorry now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person though some one might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. (laughs) And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still enemies, his enemies, 
we, were cert- we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in this wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Five things I want to take away just from that portion of Scripture is that prior to this point in history, we had no hope. And just at the right time, Christ came into the world to die for sinners. And I'd happen to agree with Paul. It might be easy for somebody to stand in front of a bullet for an upright person. But what would it be like for somebody to stand in front of a gun for an unrighteous, immoral person? Well, that's exactly what God did. It's remarkable. And we're talking about God. We're not even talking about humans like us. We're talking about somebody who's beyond this world. (laughs) Number two, in verse seven, it defies human logic that some would die for just immoral and unjust people. Number three, but God was determined to show his love for people who didn't deserve it by sending his son to die for sinners. Number four, we were made right in God's sight and he saved us from his wrath and his condemnation. How? Through the blood of his son Christ. Number five, not only has God made us right in his eyes and saved us and spared us from the condemnation that was due, in addition to that, he restored friendship. Think about it. In the beginning, Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God. They hung. They were friends. Think about what was the problem in Isaiah. The problem was that Israel rejected their care. What is the problem that God has? Does God have a problem? No. But what I'm saying is, is he longs to be our friends. (laughs) And he will go through any effort to not only show that to us, but gather us and restore friendship, restore those cool-of-the-day journeys with his bride. (laughs) He had friendship with them in the days of Genesis. At this moment of history, God finds the right time to send his son into the world because he loves the world. And he wants to save it. He wants to spare and restore it. That which was taken through Christ. You see, love never stops dreaming of a way to draw close again. God, we thank you that you have made every effort through Christ to restore us, to make us your friends once again, to make us right in your sight. God, I ask, Lord, that as we conclude this time, Father, that we would be reminded of the good news. We would be reminded of the ancient prophecy of Isaiah that unto us a child was born. And unto us a child was given. Not only was he born unto us, but you were given to us as a gift to redeem us, to restore us, and to save us. God, today we want to be reminded 
of the glorious gift of Christ Jesus, the greatest gift in this holiday season that we will unwrap is that which is found in your son centuries later. I want to have Will come up and we're going to close out here. Just keep your eyes down, keep your hearts focused because it would not be right to offer a message like this and not give an opportunity for salvation. And I'm not going to assume for one minute that all of us who have gathered here today are saved. And so, what I want to do, no emotion, is offer Christ. I want to offer the gift of salvation. So with every heart and every head bowed, if you today have come and you do not know Christ, you are missing out, friend. You say, well, Daryl, that sounds trite. That sounds shallow. Well, let's make it simple. If you do not, if you've entered these doors, what we want to offer is the greatest gift that the earth has ever seen and will ever see. Christ, the gift of salvation. Listen, don't struggle in your head. Don't war in your heart. God wants friendship with you. And he's offered that friendship through Jesus. And you can come to God no other way but through what his son did on the cross. If that's you in this place, if you want the gift of eternal life, if you want the gift of redemption, if you want the gift of freedom, if you want the gift of being forgiven, accepted, and reconciled to God, raise your hand now. With every heart and head bowed, raise your hand now. Don't procrastinate. It's a safe place. Keep your hands raised. I'm going to do it one more time without any emotion. Keep your hands raised because we want to do more than just have some kind of secretive, um, uh, you know, acknowledgement of Christ. We want to make our decision known before man so that God will make us known or Jesus will make us known unto God. (laughs) One more time. If you want the gift of Christ, the gift of salvation, raise your hand. Keep it raised. Now I'm going to ask for you to do something very bold. Those who have raised their hand, I want you to come up forward to this altar. I want those who haven't to keep your heads bowed. Those who raise their hands. Listen, this is very comfortable. Come to the altar. Come on. Let's not fight it. Let's do it. Keep your heads bowed and your hands raised. We're just, just be in the presence of the Lord. We're going to pray for you. Come on, Jay. I'm going to do it one more time because I believe there's still others. 
One more time and that's it. Listen, you are not offered tomorrow. Life for you could change like that. I'm not trying to manipulate you. It is the facts, kid. Your life could change in an instant. And I think what God wants to do here this evening is give us the security of eternal life. The gift that no matter what happens in life, no matter what diseases, what uh, accidents, what death may come our way, that you have the reassurance of eternity. One more time, if you want the gift of Christ, raise your hand. Okay. I need some brothers to come up, some sisters to come up. Crystal, Noah, you guys just stay here, stay pray. I'm going to need you guys to come up and pray. And I want all those who are here just for the next two minutes just to begin to pray for those up here. As we'll play softly in the background, extend your hands. Three people have given their hearts to Christ today. Three people. Listen, they have just made one of the most important choices that they will ever make in life. Choosing to follow Jesus, there is something to rejoice. Can we pray for them? Can we pray for them? Come on. I'm not asking for you to expectate. I'm asking for you to pray. If you have to go, we dismiss you. But if you want to stay, pray. Pray earnestly. Sing this song together. Yeah, sing it out. Sing it out to Jesus. Jesus, you make all things. Let's stand to our feet and sing this. Go, Because one way or another, Jesus has made you new. You are a new creation. Jesus, you make all. Sing it out. With Jesus. 
I want um, really quick why there's prayer happening here. We're going to continue that. Omar, will you come forward? I want you to share what God spoke to you. We're going to seem like we're transitioning, but we're going to do something, I think, prophetic here today. I want you to share what God had spoken to you. We, last night, as a community at the House of Prayer, were praying for what we're now facing as a community with 135 uh, Western Avenue in the transition that kind of we're going through. And Omar, in the midst of worship and in the midst of prayer, felt like God spoke to him. So we're going to have Omar share what the Lord spoke to him and that I am just going to declare something over 135 Western Avenue. Just before I speak, I just want to give Jesus praise um, for the lives that have come into the kingdom of God today. Jesus, you are worthy, Lord. You are so worthy, God. You are so worthy, Lord, and we lift up your name in this place. And we thank you, Jesus, for these lives that have come into your kingdom and the many more that are going to come in the midst of revival. There is promised revival, Lord. There is a harvest coming there, God. And so many times it's easy for me to think of harvest and, and not see a face there, God Almighty. But, Lord, there, there are souls coming into the kingdom of God. There are people who are coming to know the person of who you are. And we praise you, Lord. Amen. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Omar Brown. <laughs> As Daryl said, um, and last last night in prayer, um, Daryl was was praying, and I got an image of of God the Father looking at Daryl, um, and he was in a toy store. Um, he can say, it, I think some people are saying that, yeah. Um, and there is, um, I got an image, and there, God was in a toy store. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And God the Father looked on the shelf, and he picked up something, and he looked at Daryl, and he said, do you want this? Do you want this? And I got three scriptures. Um, the first one said, was Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 that said, um, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy path straight. The second one was, I believe, from Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then um, the third one was a scripture that says, those who delight themselves in the Lord, he will give them the desires of their heart. And I feel like um, what the Lord, the message, the main message that I feel like the Lord was giving to Daryl um, and to this community, um, but mostly to Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was was um, not to be afraid of our own desires um, and not to be afraid to ask the Lord um, for what we what we want. So, all right. So I had Omar do that for a reason. When God speaks, I just want to move and uh, I want to trust that what He's saying, because um, we're looking for God to speak. And God doesn't have to necessarily speak to me all the time, you know. And so I just want to thank you, Omar. But can we quickly just stand to our feet? And what we're going to do is what we've been doing for some time now since we found out about the sale of the house. We have been praying a prayer that God would preserve 135 Western Avenue for the purposes of his kingdom 
in Cambridge. But now I feel as though the prayer needs to change. Through this dream, I feel like the authority is to ask for the gift. It's for God to take that thing from the shelf and give it to me. The first thing that comes to mind is ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Now, of course, he's speaking about Christ. He's not speaking about me. But there is something within that text that is powerful. And even where Jesus says in John 15, you can ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. And so, Lord, this evening, together as a community, as a body, as a fellowship, God, we declare, give us 135 Western Avenue, Jesus. Give us that piece of property, God. Oh, God, and let it be the first fruits of many properties, God. Lord, preserve this place and give us this house. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Listen, I want you to put your hands together for these salvations. Can we rejoice? Come on. Come on, come on. A little bit more. Clap it up. Come on. Come on. The Bible says that even heaven rejoices. So I need to get each one of your contacts. We are going to go into baptizing you, if that would be okay. And we'll give a little bit of context. But it's always important that following salvation comes baptism. Amen. Listen, be blessed. We love you. Listen, I want to encourage you. Um, The end of the year is coming. I want to encourage you as a pastor to consider this ministry as the end of the year kind of draws to an end and a new one begins, consider us in your financial giving. You know, nothing nothing of this and what we do on a daily basis happens because it's free. It's costly. And um, we're willing to bear that cost. And I want it more uh, than just to fall on the backs of some. I want it to fall on the backs of many. And so I want to encourage you as the end of the year draws near, that you would consider the Justice House of Prayer. I'm not ashamed of asking for money. You know why? Because I'm not ashamed of people asking for money from me. It's a dealt with situation in my heart. I'm not worried about 10% because in my life, I want to give God all I have. And that's more than finances. That's my heart. 10% is not an issue. It's my generosity. And so I just want to leave us with that today. Other than that, be blessed. We love you guys. We know that some of you guys are traveling out for the holiday seasons, but join us because next Sunday we're going to talk about the miracles surrounding Jesus' birth. All right? We love you guys. Be blessed. If you gave your life to Christ, could you just come over into this corner uh, just for five seconds? We just want to talk to you briefly and and just get some of your information. We want to stay connected. Don't leave without connecting with Crystal. She just want to ask you some questions and get some things from you. Right over here, Crystal, right to the left.
Crystal, raise and shake your hands. Right over here, this smiley girl over here. Listen, don't leave without connecting with Crystal. If you gave your heart to Christ, one of the things that are essential is that you connect with community. Amen? Amen.